HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Coming up on Eating Matters, we'll be discussing the USDA's updated SNAP retailer requirements with Chuck Abbott. And later in the show, we'll be talking to the CEO of the food delivery service, Munchery. Stay tuned. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. And welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to be talking about the USDA's proposed changes for retailers participating in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. This program is the largest in the domestic hunger safety net, and over 44 million Americans rely on it each month. According to the USDA, as of September 2015, over 250,000 firms were authorized to to participate in SNAP, a number that increased by 12% since 2011. Recently, the USDA released its proposal to require retailers to supply a wider variety of healthy and whole foods for SNAP recipients, which has been met with a great deal of resistance. Chuck Abbott from the Inside Ag will join us in a bit to further discuss these changes, and then later in the show, we'll be joined by Tree Tran, co-founder and CEO of Muntry, our featured startup of the week. But before we get into our discussion on SNAP, I want to briefly discuss some of the biggest food policy stories in the past week. And in the studio with me today to delve into these topics is my associate producer, Taylor Lanzette. Taylor, um, this is her radio debut, and I am so excited to have you uh, in the studio with me. Thanks, Jenna. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so, so let's jump right in. What's been what's been going on in the wonderful world of food policy? Yeah. So last Wednesday, the FDA released their long-awaited voluntary sodium reduction targets. Uh, this has been a decade-long battle with the Center for Science and the Public Interest, and they've been pretty much asking the FDA to just do better by setting sodium limits and advocating. Uh, for changing the safe status of salt. Uh, The drafted short-term and long-term voluntary targets for the industry are intended to help the American public gradually reduce sodium intake to 
2,300 milligrams per day, which is the recommended level by scientists and public health experts. Right. So just for a little bit of context, um, average sodium intake right now in the U.S. is a whopping 3,400 milligrams, which is way more than, I guess, what they're suggesting it should be. And um, just to put in a a public health reminder here, um, why we care about this is because when sodium intake increases, blood pressure increases, and high blood pressure is a risk factor for heart disease and stroke, which also happen to be two leading causes of death in the U.S. So the public health community probably thinks this is a pretty big deal. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, yes. What uh, what, what happens next? Uh, So right now, the draft guidelines are open to public comment. And once the agency reviews those comments, um, they'll publish a final guide. But Mm -hmm. even with that, it just remains a guide. So it's voluntary. Um, And the ultimate targets for the industry are, you know, what they're aiming to achieve is 10 years down the road, meaning we might not see these things till 2027 or 2028, depending on how fast the FDA works. Hmm. Not very always. Um, I think this is great because, you know, it shows like, I mean, we've we've heard from big companies like Nestle, which is the world's largest food company, Mars, another, you know, behemoth It's <laughs> um, in terms of the food world. Um, and then recently Unilever and PepsiCo joining the likes of the American Heart Association, CSPI, um, Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. So these, these groups kind of seem like strange bedfellows, mm. but um, but I think it really represents like uh, a big step change um, and, and industry plus public health working to move forward uh, on this issue. Yeah. Um, okay. Also, I also have to give a shout out to New York City. I love one of my favorite parts of the show is when I get to do this, but um, the health department and the city, of, of course, way, way ahead of the curve. Uh, I want to remind everybody that the New York City Health Department launched its own um, national salt reduction initiative in 2008, targeting sodium in processed foods and chain restaurants. And in a statement released on Friday, um, Sonia Angel, the deputy commissioner of the city's division of prevention and primary care, um, reminded everybody that New York City was a trailblazer and pushed the FDA um, to set these voluntary limits. So kudos to the health department. And then also one more plug. Um, this past Monday, New York City, uh, the the uh, high sodium warning labeling rules went into effect officially at chain restaurants. So um, kudos to New York. Yes. Leading again. Done. Um, so next up. Yeah. Have- yeah. You're like, you're like moving on. <laughs> <laughs> we have cotton in the news. Uh, so on Tuesday, the USDA announced that they will pay 300 million to cotton producers to offset some of the ginning costs. Um, and so this is really an effort to bring stability to the industry that's seen major declines from just generally increases in global production of cotton. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the USDA is hopeful that their new cotton ginning cost share program will provide temporary relief to many of the stakeholders in the cotton world. Um, and the cost share payments are capped at 40000 per individual or business, um, and folks in the industry can sign up between June 20th and August 5th. Um, and cotton allies and lobbyists are already thinking, you know, this is obviously not going to be enough. And Michael Conaway, the House Ag uh, Committee chairman has requested that the S- the USDA designate cotton seed as an oil seed so it can be eligible for commodity support programs in the 2014 Farm Bill. So, is this does this mean that cotton's not currently treated like a food staple? 
commodity crop and and they're basically trying to designate it as such seems that way um okay well um, and then they're definitely gonna maybe have a fight because it seems like there are a lot of other you know things that could be subsidized like quote specialty crops vegetables vegetable (laughs) aka vegetables yeah okay um you know uh, and the, the last thing uh, we'll sort of dive in today is atrazine. Um, and so atrazine is the second most widely used weed killer in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And last week, the EPA released a report that the pesticide possesses a serious threat to many birds, mammals, fish, and frogs. Right. And, and the backstory here is that the EPA, you know, they need to do this. They need to reevaluate pesticides uh, every 15 years, is it? And the last time this was done um, was 2003. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so atrazine is in the hot seat. Mm-hmm. Um, and just for some general context, uh, farmers use about 70 million pounds of atrazine a year. Uh, That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a lot. And 90% of that, so most of it's used on corn, but it's also sprayed on soybeans and sugar cane, wheat and oats. Um, And not surprisingly, Europe has already banned atrazine. Of course. Um, And so U.S. environmentalists are pushing the EPA to do the same. Um, And if you're interested in learning more about atrazine, um, one of my favorite TED Talks is by UC Berkeley uh, researcher Tyrone Hayes who um, pretty much has explored how atrazine is linked um, as an endocrine disruptor in sexual development of frogs. Fascinating. It, it really is. It's a great <laughs> talk. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll check it out. And then just a reminder, so the draft report uh, is on the EPA's website, and it's open for comments for the next 60 days. So if, you have, um, if you're inspired after watching the TED Talk or whatnot, comment. Okay, that wraps it up for our new segment today. Be sure to tweet or direct message us at Eat Matters HRN if you would like to include a particular policy update or if you have thoughts on the ones that we discussed today. Okay. Now we're going to turn to the topic at hand, discussing the USDA's proposed changes to uh, its requirements for retailers participating in the $80 million program. Under the USDA's proposal, in order for a store to participate in food stamp in, the, in, in this program and accept SNAP benefits, retailers will now have to stock a wider variety of foods than in the past. So specifically, um, they would need to stock a minimum of 168 items, including seven varieties of food in the four staple food groups plus perishable items in at least four of the food groups, with a depth of stock defined as six stocking units. So let me just break that down. Seven times four times six for those of, of, uh, of us who had a hard time following that. Um, by the way, the four food groups, stable food groups, are considered to be meat, poultry, or fish, bread, or cereal, vegetables, or fruit, and dairy. 
Um, if this is sounding fairly obtruse, suffice it to say that the USDA's proposal would ensure a broader variety of nutritional food options that encourage uh, healthy cooking at home, so more real whole food options for people participating in the program. Joining me on the line today to dig into the details of this proposal, what the response has been to it, and what it means to people relying on this very important program is Chuck Abbott, editor of Ag Insider, published by the Food and Environment Reporting Network, who has covered food and ag issues in Washington for three decades. Chuck, welcome back to the show. Hello. How are you? Oh, just great. Good. Happy to hear from you. Well, we're really excited to have you back. Um, let's just start at the beginning. What prompted these changes, and when were the the proposed ch- changes first released? Well, the uh, changes are you know, required under the twenty fourteen. Um, I'm sorry, yeah, the twenty fourteen Farm Law, which was itself uh, five years in development in Congress. <laughs> And it's, you know, Congress specifically said USDA needed to revamp regulate the, the question of how many, what staple foods would be offered um, in, you know, by stores participating in the food stamp program. And the uh, goal from all this was to provide a greater variety of healthy foods for uh, lower income Americans. USDA put out its proposal in uh, February 16th of this year, mm-hmm. uh, they made it falls in. It's a fairly lengthy document, like all sorts of uh, proposed regulations. It, it made three major changes, or proposed three major changes. Okay. First was the, as, as, as I just said, it broadened the variety of foods that must be offered by stores that want to redeem food stamp uh, benefits. Um, <clears throat> It um, changes. It would, it would change the definition of you know, of who's a, who is a store that can participate in the program by saying uh, retailers are ineligible to the program if they get more than 15 percent of their receipts from sale of prepared food, you know, of, you know hot food, foods that are prepared mm-hmm. and served hot either before or after after purchase in the store. Okay. It includes all revenue from in the store, not just revenue from food stamp uh, sales. And third, it tightens the definition of what is a staple food. Okay. Um, so, and, oh, sorry. And, and, that's, and that's important because it gets back to the question for, for the people who run stores with a limited amount of square footage of how many items do they have to have on the shelves in order to satisfy the government regulation. Okay, so three major changes proposed, um, the first of the, uh, which I kind of went into a little bit of detail uh, in the intro. Um, then you mentioned the the 15%. So if you get 15% or more of your total sales from a cooked or heated, either cooked or heated on site, you're not eligible. Can we talk about this? Like what, uh, I'm a little bit, the 15% feels a little bit, Arbitrary. Um, what was the rationale behind this cutoff? Well, it, okay. The uh, USDA uh, USDA held a uh, held five listening sessions around the country as mm-hmm. part of preparing you know this, this proposal. Uh, and in and in its Federal Register notice, it says that it, at, at the moment the uh, cutoff is fifty percent. Oh. 
Well, that's but the, quite, you know, a, the, quite a but difference. The, but the information that it gathered during the, uh, the uh, listening sessions and other work that it did in preparing for the, uh, to write the regulation um, said that, you know, that a, a, a stricter um, cutoff point was appropriate. And in the, you know, in the, uh, in the federal register, federal register notice, USDA talks about it doesn't want restaurants, you know, in the food stamp arena. That's because the food stamp program, and USDA says this repeatedly, is designed to provide foods for preparation and consumption at home. Right, but but why? Yeah. I mean, I mean that makes sense, but why? Um... I mean that's a that's a big difference. But like, was there? Do they do they think that there's fraud? Uh, you know, happening? Do they think that there are restaurants currently accepting SNAP benefits? Well, it, it's it basically it's to make sure restaurants are not uh, part of the program. You know, because except in limited circumstances, these kind programs just provide you know, groceries for meals at home not restaurant food. And USDA and the Federal Register Notice talked about how you know, there were you know, retailers who would sell, you know, for instance, a frozen pizza to someone mm-hmm. and then say, hey, for an additional certain amount of, you know, of money or even for free, throw it in our microwave and it's good to go. And USDA and its proposal says, well, now, now they've effectively become a restaurant. They're serving hot food. Oh. They're serving a meal to somebody, but they've taken food stamp uh, money for it. Got it. Now, now, yeah. now, now you, because you talked about the 15% uh, you know, cutoff point, that has become probably the leading complaint from convenience store operators. And convenience store operators are... 40% of all the firms that are authorized to redeem food stamp benefits. There's about uh, 260,000 firms in the United States that are part of the food stamp program. And there's, you know, um, 106,531 firms that uh, you know, are convenience stores that are part of the program. That's a, that's a, that's a USDA's latest count of the year, firms that are part of the program. Right. So this would effectively disqualify your typical, like, New York City uh, corner bodega that does offer fresh food a lot of times and healthy options, but also seems to do a fair amount of business serving prepared foods as well. It certainly could. Um, when uh, the House Agriculture Committee held a hearing on the future of food, you know, they call it the future of food stamps, and they brought in uh, retailers on May 12th, the... Uh, yeah, Douglas Beach, who was the director of government relations for Casey's General Store, and I could interject here that Casey's General Store is a chain of convenience stores uh, has nearly uh, has more than 1,900 uh, outlets throughout the Midwest, uh, the Plains, and the uh, Mid South. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, in his testimony, Mr. Beach said that 40 percent of the food sa- total food sales. Cases come from prepared food items. Now, that's not quite the same as saying hot food, but it gives you an idea. Cases, you know, sells a lot of prepared food. I mean, his testimony made the point that Cases sells, you know, it's supposedly famous for selling pizza. Right. And he said you know, that the proposed program, by altering the eligibility requirements, 
would push all of our stores and tens of thousands of other small format retailers out of the food stamp program because you know, they get such a, you know, they make such a large volume of their revenue from prepared foods, which would of course include hot foods. He said that they've done it, they did a survey and they, they, their analysis was that 220 of their stores are the only store in the community, the only grocery store in the community that they food stamp. So, uh, you can see that, you know, the, the, this, is the, this is the concern, what do they call it, Fred, that the, small, you know, the operators of smaller stores have raised, that the, uh, this 15% cutoff point is, you know, just set, you know, too high. Right. You know, uh, and, and, and members of Congress, you know, like Senator Jerry Moran from Kansas, who's the chairman of the kind of Appropriation Subcommittee that handles the USDA budget, and he, he alluded to that concern during a markup on um, the USDA Appropriations Bill for this year. That right. The concern that, you know, so, um, store operators in his state were saying, we might not be in the business anymore. Or, or yeah. Anymore taking food stamps. Right. And so the proposal also says that um, the definition of staple foods would change. Can you just go right. over what the definition is now and what the USDA is proposing? Okay. Well, the, this is, again, as you said, this is, as I said, this is one of the points where it's a little arcane, but, it, but the impact can be profound. A staple food is defined, you know, the USDA says staple foods, there's four categories of them, mm-hmm. dairy, fruits and vegetables, bread and cereals, and meat and fish. One thing that's doing by changing the definition of staple foods is it says that multiple ingredient items will no longer be, be counted toward satisfying the staple food requirements. So this means that macaroni and cheese, pizza, frozen oh. <laughs> dinners, they won't count as multiple ingredient foods. At the moment, they do. Mm-hmm. And USDA, one of the reasons USDA users in justifying this change in definition is it says, well, you know, something like chicken pot pie now would be, you know, under the current rules, is a staple food. And then the current rules, essentially the, the department looks at what's the first ingredient on the list of ingredients on the package. Okay. In this case, you know, it says, well, you know, some chicken pot pies, bread is the first thing that's mentioned. Other, other brands, chicken is the first thing that's mentioned. So, so, so it says, well, you could have a situation then where one convenience store could stock two types, you know, two different brands of chicken pot pies and say it's satisfying the meat and the bread and cereal requirement. Huh. Which totally defeats the purpose of... Right. Yeah. Uh, it, it defeats the purpose of we want a broader array of healthy foods. Right. And has there been a lot of pushback for, the, for for with this particular um, uh, proposal, more so or less so than the fifteen percent cutoff? Um, there has been, uh, you know, this, this has gotten a lot of attention uh, within the industry. You know, like the same day that USDA released its proposal, um, you know, anal- you know, analyses and uh, started um, circulating. Uh, it, it was mostly, you know, most of this well, a big deal within. The food industry mm-hmm. was, pretty, you know, it, it, it wasn't a, a topic of general discussion. It's, it, 
it eventually bubbled to the surface when uh, it became closer to the time for the House and the Senate to begin the appropriations process. Because the House and the Senate, both in, in their USDA funding bills for the new fiscal year, which begins October 1st, uh, in both cases, the appropriations committees have included writers that say USDA cannot go forward with this uh, proposal. And this is built partly around, you know, the loud opposition from the food you know, from food retailers. Um, the uh, National Association of Convenience Stores uh, put in a public comment calling for USDA to be, you know, just to totally withdraw the proposal. Okay. There were twelve. There were twelve hundred public comments on the on wow. this rule. Right. That's a pretty good. Uh, that's a pretty good response. I mean, it's not like the Waters of the United States rule, which is <laughs> which helps is an attempt by EPA to further clarify clean water. Yeah. The Clean Water Act, which got like a million responses, but now there are there are regulation proposed regulations that go out there, and they might get like four or five replies. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So this was so that was it was pretty controversial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Within the uh, within the, the food sector, yeah, this is is a big deal. Attention. And I want to talk about the appropriations um, process in a minute. Like when, when we come back from break, um, I want to kind of dig into like the the actual processes and, and where we're, we are with this proposal and what you know what the, the the outcome or the forecast kind of looks like for its potential passage but um i wanted to ask one question um before we go to break and the thing that i kind of struggle with in listening to these you know these proposed changes like redefining staple food so that pizza can't Count, count cannot count in like two different categories, let's say, or you know the the drive to stock more healthier options, um, and the pushback being that it's burdensome. Um, I guess I'm. It's hard for me that there's still such a huge divide between the public health and the anti hunger community, and I'm like, shouldn't we all just agree that the recipients of federal food assistance should have access to healthful food choices? Like, why do you think that this is still an issue? <laughs> That we see played out in federal um, policy. Yeah, well, it, it's an issue because, um, I like the guy, like the you know, Douglas Beach from Casey's, the example that you know, he says they have relatively small stores, um, you know, like forty eight hundred square feet at the most. Mm-hmm. They got, they get, uh, you know, a lot of their stores are in rural areas. They get a delivery, they get a, a delivery truck comes around once a week. And it's just like a lot of the items that they stock on the shelves, they only have like two or three of them. The USDA proposal says you have to have a stocking depth of six items for each of these um, each of these varieties of food in each of the categories. Right? So his his argument is like you know it's just you know logistically difficult to get that that much material into the store, and then it's going to sit there for so long that someone's going to spoil, particularly the, the perishables. Um, so that you know the, the cost of meeting the requirement is you know much greater than USDA's estimate of you know only a couple hundred dollars for the additional items. Um, so it just goes back to you know the food industry and the food retailers um, you know, have they're you know like the rest of the like other industries. They're just worried. You know, they're they're averse to outsiders setting the rules. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and you know. so, 
you know, I think I uh, I disagree with Jenna on this <laughs> on this point in that I want as many places as possible to accept SNAP to make it easier for people to be able to use their SNAP benefits. Um, but I guess you know, like the I'm curious what you think in terms of is this just a a simple supply and demand issue of businesses not wanting to to change their inventory. Um, when SNAP makes no guarantee that the participants will actually purchase those items, or why, um, why you know the, the differing camps here? What um, what do you think in terms of uh, you know why more of these corner bodegas can't offer a, a bounty of vegetables? Well, not so much. It's so much. It's just been it's been covered in studies of food deserts and. Um, and other problems in getting, you know, supplies of fresh and healthy foods to people. I mean, some of it really is the, the question of, um, of you know, turnover at the store. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of it, you know, um, you know, it's you know a, a package of, of rice or a, a prepared, um, you know, frozen you know, frozen dinner is going to stay, you know. In, in saleable condition, a lot longer than you know a bunch of bananas that's sitting on the counter next to the cash register. Uh, it's uh, it, it is that's for some operators. It's just difficult to get you know, to be to able to stock the merchandise and have enough of on hand for when people are going to want to buy it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yes, I I do think that. Um, these changes they are great and i really hope that they move forward especially with the you know in terms of the variety of healthy foods that should be stocked um but obviously i also want to make sure that there are enough retailers that can participate in a given area um so that everyone can really access and use their snap benefits um (laughs) but i realize that's that's hard that's that's very tricky Um, okay, you know what? We are actually we're running a little over, so we're going to take a really quick commercial break, and then when we can come back, Chuck, I've got a couple more questions for you, um, and then we will um, move on to our startup of the week. Proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market, America's healthiest grocery store with more than 400 locations throughout the United States. Download the Whole Foods Market app on your smartphone for recipes, sales, information, and digital coupons. Or visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store closest to you. on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Chuck Abbott from the Food and Environment uh, Reporting Network about the USDA's updated SNAP retailer requirements, or their proposed um, SNAP retailer requirements. Um, okay, so before we went to break, we were talking a little bit about access um, and both Taylor and I's viewpoint. Um, and Chuck, I'm curious what you think this means, these proposed changes mean for the likelihood of SNAP maybe being accepted at other other less traditional places like farmers markets, which of course is you know increasing in popularity as a uh, in terms of an access point for using your SNAP benefits, um, but also online retailers who aren't currently 
allowed to participate in the program. Do you think that this could kind of move the needle on on having the USDA think a little bit more creatively about who can provide these healthy food options? Um, uh, USDA has been, been very very quiet on those sort of issues, and in a lot of cases, it would require you know the, the usual rulemaking process where which USDA has say it's identified a need and decided to see whether there are um, there is demand. Yeah. In that particular area, but one thing that you know, um, food stamps accounts amounts to about nine percent of grocery sales across the country, according to the Food Marketing Institute. Okay. Wow. Which is a which represents you know supermarkets. Yep. Uh, and you know one of the fascinating facts I learned: eighty-two um, percent of food stamp benefits are redeemed by supermarkets and superstores. Okay. Uh, which which is not terribly surprising because a lot of people shop at big places. Right. The convenience stores who led to you know, have been the most vocal in opposing hmm. uh, USDA regulation, they account for five percent of food stamp benefits. And things like direct marketing, um, that's like you know, a tenth of you know, it's a hundredth of a percent for only only five million dollars. Yeah. You know, last year. Um you know, I should be able to find uh, I think I could find farmers markets. Farmers markets are two hundredths. Okay, so not very much. Of, of the, uh, <laughs> but a very important part. A very important yeah, part. Right. It, it, it's just like when you talk about, you, know, you can see the convenience stores, you know, they're five percent of the, the benefits. Uh, yet they're forty percent of the stores. You, can, you, know, you look at you know, in some analyses, you can say five percent of the, uh, the of the demand goes through there. That's not such a big thing to worry about. But, yeah, right. The folks from these convenience stores will tell you, and you know, in some cases, they're you know, they're the only store in town, right? Or they're the only store within easy walking distance of somebody's house. And then, and then the question becomes: Is that is that where the majority of the people shop, or do they do they always go to the closest option, or do they? Try, you know, try to find a way to kind of get to those bigger, bigger stores like your WalMarts, which isn't yeah. isn't Walmart the largest uh, recipient of or, or yeah, the largest yes, snap, yes, snap Walmart, retailer? Well, yes, actually, both things. One, Walmart is the largest uh, grocer in the you know, in the United States, although it's not a grocery chain, but still, it's the largest volume, wow. largest dollar volume of grocery sales. And yes, it also was the largest. Also, has been the largest. Um, a participant in the food stamp program. Have they uh, been? And, and, and the studies have shown that uh, food stamp uh, participants, even if they don't have a car, car of their own, <clears throat> still find ways to get to you know to, to shop at larger stores. They, uh, whether they you know, they get a hitch a ride with somebody else or on public transit. Uh, you know, it's uh, in some in many cases like other shoppers. You know they. Pay attention to you know they pay attention to price and they're willing to go a little bit further to get a a better price on the on groceries or more a, a wider selection right or they feel better quality has so. have you heard um, has Walmart been vocal in you know or out in front of, of any of these proposed changes at all I'm just curious if you've heard anything uh, well the uh, the uh, the grocery chains have uh, the big grocery chains have not said very much about this proposal. And, and for them, you know, it, it, the changes really won't matter. Right. Because, right. you know, they have huge amounts of, uh, almost all these stores have you know, huge amounts of square footage. Uh, if they run 
a deli or a uh, salad bar with you know soup, uh, hot you know, hot soup and chili to go. That's still a small portion of this. Area. Um, and, and then you know they they stock so many different foods that it doesn't matter to them if you know USD says as it proposes here that you know that stores must have seven varieties of food in the four categories plus three varieties, you know, perishable items in three of those categories of staple foods. And they've got them. They got that stuff all over the place already. <laughs> yeah. Right. So Chuck, what happens next? Um, you know, right now, um what's especially on the legislative front, um, what are we waiting for, um, in terms of if the you know, what's Congress uh if they're blocking the uh, appropriations bill? Just what are the general changes in the proposal that um, are going to get pushed along? Okay, well, the, um, right now, we're, if this is a Broadway show, it would be where the, the musical intro is just start repeating itself and repeating <laughs> itself, and it's called Evamping Till Ready. Because you know, Congress has started doing appropriations bills, but doing very slowly. And we're starting to face the uh, constraints of the calendar. Congress um, slow? Are, no. Appropriations bills that have to be passed every year. Uh, Congress has a, in the last few years has a, has a poor record of getting all of them done on time. Uh, last year, you know, you know, Congress ended up doing an omnibus, you know, very, you know, everything in the kitchen sink into one bill, and they did it in December instead of the deadline of doing it by the time the fiscal year starts. Right. Anyway, to get back to where we where, where I was a moment ago, so we're, you know, we're, uh, the appropriations committees in the House and Senate have approved their bills. So now we're waiting for floor debate. Under the uh, textbook um, explanation of how a bill becomes law, the two, uh, the two chambers would pass a bill. Mm-hmm. They would have a they would have a conference committee, you know, with members from each chamber, which would agree on would reconcile the differences, agree on the wording. They would take their this, Compromise bill back to both chambers, pass it in both chambers, send it to the president, and the president would sign it. So I said, you know, we're, we're facing the, the problem of the calendar because the presidential nominating conventions are scheduled for July. Most years they're held in, in August, but this time around they're being held in July. Which means that there's, you know, about, you know, looking you know, at the calendar today, there's four or five weeks left before Congress takes off for the second half of July and all of August. Right. Because that's the summer recess. The plan then is to come back, work through September, and then take a break in October to go home and campaign for re-election. Which means there's, effectively, there's very little time left for Congress to agree on these bills. Right. So you can, you know, it, it's very, and, and we're also starting to get partisan, you know, hyper and hyper partisanship in Congress, so that you know, the chances of, of of legislation moving become less and less. And one of the things that happens when you go to these omnibus appropriations bills, like they did last year, is that a very small number of people, you know, the leaders from each house, are involved in writing those bills, and a lot of the work that has been done by the appropriations committee gets erased. Okay, great. <laughs> so, you know, when you come to forecasting the future, <laughs> um, you know, it's not guaranteed that um, the Congress will pass a bill that 
you know, a compromise bill that you know, blocks the USDA from going forward with this rule. It could. I mean, for its part, USDA um, has said that it disappointed Congress wants to take a step backwards on providing healthy foods to uh, families. And it says it's going to continue working on the uh, on the regulation, and it intends to publish a final rule later this year. So USDA is moving full steam ahead, and Congress <laughs> is trying to block it, but probably, and, hopefully, will be unsuccessful. Is that, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's the basic outline. Okay. All right. Great. Um, well, we're going to have to leave it there for a discussion on SNAP today. Chuck, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Um, for all of you listening, for more on Ag Insider and the Food and Environment Reporting Network, and to subscribe, go to thefern.org. Um, also, to celebrate their fifth anniversary, Fern published a print collection of their work called Dirt, Dispatches from the Front Lines of Food and Farming 2011 through 16. So be sure to check that out on their website as well all right haha yes yes <laughs> that's right it's time for our new segment guys the startup of the week where we feature an innovative and new exciting food organization or company at the end of each episode with that i'm pleased to introduce tree tran co-founder and ceo of the food delivery service Muntry, now operating in san francisco la seattle and new york tree welcome to the show Hey, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, so tell us, tell us about Muntry and how it works. Yeah, Muntry features chef design, chef crafted meals, uh, where we do the cooking ourselves, mm-hmm. and then we also uh, deliver the food to you, whether home or office. Uh, so yeah, our our um, uh, key strength is we're pretty much a vertically integrated company where we uh, source the ingredient, uh, we do the prepping and cooking ourselves, mm-hmm. and we build all the technology to provide uh, a, a, an experience where customer can place orders, track their orders, and get delivery. Uh, the the whole works and get the feedback to you know whether they like the food or not uh, the whole way. So yeah, we're 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 in the four markets you mentioned. Um, but uh, that makes us um, having some some key uh, customer base that we hope to expand to additional cities here. And as as I as I talk, so <laughs> right now to, uh, to be here. Oh, that's great. So what um, what uh, I know that the market is you know it's a little bit crowded right now in terms of the uh, food delivery meal kit services. Um, can you share with our listeners from like a consumer perspective? Um, what really differentiates Montre from the pack? Yeah, there are um, a lot of uh, companies for sure. Uh, I think people are familiar with with probably the very popular Grubhub seamless style where, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, a platform where you place order from a local restaurant. But then there are other companies who also provide delivery service from local restaurants. Uh, the key differentiator there is that all those companies uh, leverage the food made at restaurants. And there's nothing wrong with restaurants in that, you know, you go into a restaurant, you, you order a dish and some cook uh, or chef in the kitchen make it for you and put it in front, right in front of you in the dining room for you to enjoy. That's great and all. But the second you put that into a box and then get that food later, like 30 minutes at best uh, later, yeah. it's not meant for that purpose. Uh, Montreal, on the other hand, we exist for the single purpose of making food that is designed specifically for home delivery service. Uh, and, and so all of our chefs create these dishes, do careful R&D for all these dishes uh, for this one and single purpose. And the food 
uh, therefore is meant for you to enjoy at home. Um, we deliver it uh, chilled. We cook it and we chill it down, not frozen. Mm-hmm. Um, but we chill it and then deliver it to you chill. And then there's very simple and clear instruction right on the meal box for you to heat it up, whether in the oven or the microwave, and you get it exactly to uh, to be what the chef has intended it to be. Oh, that sounds that sounds too good to be true. Amazing. Um, what motivated you to start this company? You you have a engineering background, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm a techie by training and background, but uh, you know, uh, it, it was definitely for a personal selfish reason how I, the company got started. Because in my little household, uh, my wife does not cook. I'm the one who would do all the cooking. Okay. She's a, a classic city girl. She does not cook. She has no interest in learning how to cook, um, and maybe because she knows I would cook. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, there you go. So, so I understand the pressure that the stereotypical women in the country would feel about at the end of the work day, and the question of what's for dinner weighs on you, and, and definitely I felt that pressure, and it's not just, you know, what are we going to uh, cook today, but, you know, is it going to be any good if, if I'm going to cook something? <laughs> or is my family going to want to eat it? You know, there are other times, because we both work a lot, um, yeah. I would then order uh, local takeout, and it's usually pizzas and things like like that where uh, nothing wrong with pizza but but on a daily and weekly basis that's not, not necessarily the best food for you right. so i was dreaming of hey how can i get convenient yet high quality food uh, at home and, and mixing those two uh, very uh, opposing uh, requirements uh, was very hard to, to come about. And it took us a long time to, to do this, by the way. Uh, we've been in business for, what, nearly five years now? Okay. And, and, and finally cracking the code to make that happen. Yeah, well, I want to I wanna talk about that. Was there, was there anything that happened early on that you realized just this is not working for us and you had to kind of subsequently pivot? from and you know what was that if if so there there are a couple of changes i think the chill format was right in the get go something we had self doubts about like hey would people really be able to do this you know with the chill model right. we know that you know a lot of people are used to local restaurant takeout when you get it you you get lukewarm food but you eat it right away you don't <laughs> have to do anything yeah. um but we ultimately you know from customer feedback and our own gut decision saying you know what it gets you the best quality. I can bring you a filet of fish. I can bring you a, a, a piece of medium rare steak in this format. And mm-hmm. that's incredible. Um, and without overcooking it, without it being mushy. Uh, because if you're trying to keep it hot, by the way, it, you, you would overcook the protein and it, you would not get it's something not that you would enjoy. Yeah. So, so that was one key thing that we decided earlier on and stuck with it and turned out to be one of the biggest key advantage for us because now we can deliver really far away and keep the food safe and all that really efficiently. We don't need to have a kitchen everywhere. I can talk about capital efficiency uh, separately <laughs> if you like. So that's one. And then mm-hmm. the second uh, key thing for us is initially when the company started, it's kind of like an eBay. It's like a double-sided marketplace where Munchery, because I bootstrapped the company, couldn't hire anyone anyway. So, mm-hmm. you know, the chefs were independent chefs like, like eBay sellers and then customers were like buyers. Um, that was okay until the demand picked up more and none of these partner chefs wanted to cook 
uh, a higher amount of food because they're like, look, I make a living just fine right. uh, cooking, you know, 50, 100 meals a, a day. Yeah. Uh, why would I want to hire staff, take on more risk, and, and cook more when I'm just an independent partner? So we uh, also decided to hire on our own culinary team a few years ago and, and provide them, you know, commercial kitchen facilities, additional staff, and then, you know, of course, tools and procedures and ways to, to be able to cook a lot of food at scale at great quality. That's, that's a big one. Yeah, so the, and, and getting back to your point of you being vertically integrated now, so everything is That's that right. you would need is is in house. Interesting. Did you find so, so you, you you know not having a food background, um, but fa- but founding and leading this company? Did you find um, like you know for all of those people out there who want to be food in- entrepreneurs, do you, do you think it would be useful to have a background in uh, in the food industry or? Um, like, what was the learning curve for you? Yeah, I, I think there was a steep learning curve for sure. I had neighbors who were personal chefs that I talked to extensively. And then for the first couple of years of the company, our so-called headquarter office is in a commercial kitchen. We literally rented an office room. In right a kitchen. In a commercial kitchen. And that's where we learned a lot. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, I wouldn't use that as a deterrence, but definitely right. trying to learn quickly on, on whatever field you want to get into. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's important. Absolutely. And what better way to learn in the, in the actual kitchen? Um, yeah. So one of the things I, I, you know, as I was kind of doing my research for this, I, I uh, know that you guys provide a lot of variety, more so than, than sometimes a typical restaurant would be able to handle. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering how you can manage this from a cost perspective when purchasing. And um, also, second part of the question, um, if food waste is ever an issue for you guys because you yeah. do order you do offer so many different options. Yeah. You know, we, um, we set out to have a mission for the company since the really you know, early beginning, um, after the first you know, just trial kind of period, is to be a dinner solutions to, cons- to consumers. Mm-hmm. And, and making real food accessible to everyone everywhere is like our internal mission. Uh, to do that, you need to be a dinner solution on any given day. And a lot of our customers use our service multiple days during the week. Mm-hmm. If, if we were to have a fixed menu like a typical restaurant would, um, that's not going to achieve that because people would then get tired of it. They're like, hey, I've seen that menu you know, 50,000 times over or right. whatever, and it, it would not be exciting. So we decided in the very beginning that there needs to be daily changing menu. Mm-hmm. So a number of the dishes are, are brand new, coming on, or uh, they were on last year, and now you know the season is in again for corn or tomatoes or whatever, we reintroduce it. So that's effectively a new dish because people haven't had it for like a year. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so for us, that variety is really important to have because we want to be that dinner solutions to, to customer. Going back to, to how do we then operationalize that, you know, food margin is really thin and how do we manage waste and things like that? Um, that's through. That's when technology comes in, and that's when my uh, background, my co-founder background, is really effective because we model customers' demand. We model what people would like based on their rating and their uh, purchasing behavior of the dishes. Mm-hmm. We know what kind of protein sells better than the others, and then we also uh, build tools so that our operation staff, our culinary operations, our inventory operation staff, can cook food 
food in a very efficient and, and methodical way. So like all the recipes that, let's say you look at a typical recipe, uh, most people would think of a recipe like what they would find in a cookbook, you know, like you would make this soup for five people or whatever. Mm-hmm. Our recipe is how do you make that for 500 or 5,000 units? And, and it's uh, unfortunately not as linearly scalable as people might think it would be, you know, to, right. to cook soup for five people and then turning out to make it for 500, it does not mean you multiply every ingredient by 100 and then just follow the same steps. It does not work that way. Uh, so I would have so gotten that wrong. These things that we built tools <laughs> for both on the supply side and, and predict, predicting demand. Uh, there is a side effect to this in that some of the popular items do sell a little bit faster than others. Now, we try and, and, and learn from that and, and uh, adapt from that, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a, a learning process for us for sure, mm-hmm. and we, we do our best to meet that demand without, without making extra food and waste it. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, if we ever have extra food, uh, if that ever happens, we work with local organization. We donate to them, and they bring it to homeless shelters. They bring it to, uh, to other places where the food is made use of. We don't actually trash anything if we ever have extra food. Oh, that's great. Um, the other nice thing that we also do is we also donate in, in money, donate capital. Uh-huh. Uh, for every order that our customers place, uh, we donate money, uh, the equivalent of what it takes a local food bank to make a meal for someone who can't even afford to, to buy a meal from us right. or from anyone. Um, so yeah, we're really proud to report one of the largest donors for the San Francisco Marin Food Bank, and we do so for a local food bank in in Seattle, in L.A., in New York, and everywhere mm-hmm. that we go. Oh, that's wonderful and very, um, very much on topic with our discussion about SNAP because we know it's a very important program, but sometimes um, sometimes it's not enough for families. And so to close that gap, uh, a, lot of, a lot of Americans rely on their local food banks and um, soup kitchens. So I love to hear that you are not wasting any food and that you're also um, supporting those um, important organizations around you. Yeah, in, in every organization, in, in every market that we're, we're servicing, we have teams who obviously work there, live there. We want to be a positive uh, contribution to the local communities that we're in. And what better way to do that in something that we know how to do well, uh, right. you know, yeah. and, and to help with that instead of just, you know, some potentially other volunteering projects who, ha- who leverage less than what we know how to do. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I think that's very powerful. Okay. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to leave it there for today and wrap up. But, Tree, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Jenna. Absolutely. Um, For more information on the company and to place your orders, go to munchery.com. All right, that's it for today. I want to um, thank both of our guests, Chuck Abbott and Tree Tran, for coming on the show. Um, also, thank you to our sponsors, of course, for your generous support. Our show is produced uh, with the help of my brilliant co-hosts today, Taylor Lanzett and Austin Bernierski. Show music um, is by Tim Archer, and our engineer is Pierre Benami. And David Tetashore. Yes, I nailed those names, you guys. <laughs> kind of. I got the I got the waving of the hand, kind of. Um, all episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook. And be sure to find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.